Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak with the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Tony Waters, the portfolio manager and founder of QVG Capital. We're speaking with him about the QVG Opportunities Fund, which is a smaller Australian company's fund uh, investing in approximately 30 to 40 uh, ASX-listed companies that are outside the ASX 100. The fund returned 9.25% last year uh, and has returned 55.27% in total since its inception in June 2017. The fund is only available to wholesale and institutional investors and is currently soft-closed. During the episode, I speak with Tony about what led him to leave Ausbill, where he ran a successful small companies fund and set up his own uh, fund, uh, how they go about identifying investment opportunities and the methodology uh, they deploy in doing that, as well as what his outlook is for the Australian small company space, which is very optimistic. I hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed recording it. Uh, please remember to send me your feedback. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please remember, as always, this isn't designed to be specific advice nor an endorsement for anyone to enter into a specific investment or this investment. We encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end. And we also encourage people to receive advice uh, from an advisor prior to making any investment. Before we dive into this episode, I'd just like to say a a big thank you to all of our listeners and people who assist in the production of this podcast. We're just approaching two years and we've had over 20,000 listeners, which has been fantastic. And we've had some great guests and really enjoyed having them on. So thank you very much for all those people involved. It's been fantastic and we hope to continue and improve that process as well. A big thank you and shout out to my son, Joshua Clark. For those of you that aren't aware, Joshua, uh, my son, is the editor and producer of this podcast, and he has been the whole way along, uh, starting at the age of 16 at boarding school. Joshua will now start his uh, trial HSC and his HSC in the coming months. So, mate, I wish you all the best with that. I love you. Thank you very much for your input. It's been fantastic, and I hope to continue working with you on these, been fantastic. Enjoy the podcast. Tony, welcome to Inside the Rope. Uh, pleasure to be here. Perhaps you could give us a little bit of insight about your background and what it is you do. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I'm a joint principal of QVG Capital, which is a, a small cap uh, equities business. Uh, we've been doing that now. Uh, we're now into um, getting close to our third year of, of uh, operation. Uh, and myself and Chris, my business partner, an investment partner, has been doing that now for uh, close to 10 years. And, you know, we've had, had a relationship ongoing uh, for in the markets for, you know, getting on towards 20 years now. Okay. And what were you doing prior to uh, QVG, Tony? Uh, that was with uh, with Osbil, the Osbil Microcap Fund, uh, and that was started in two thousand February two thousand and ten, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, we we finished up at Osbil uh, around April uh, two thousand seventeen. Okay, and and 
have you always been in markets, always had an interest in investment or what led you down that path? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, I came into the markets uh, coming out of uh, Paul Keating's recession we had to have. So mm -hmm. I was probably fortunate somewhat because, you know, 92, 93, uh, you know, wasn't particularly great time for the markets. We just came out, had, had come out of a very deep recession. Uh, and there was a lot of wreckage coming out from some of these big conglomerates that were, were being listed and recapitalised in the market. And it was actually quite fortuitous. I remember my very first investment was uh, Woolworths uh, IPO coming out of Adsteam at $2.45 a share. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that was, that was, that was a good time. I mean, uh, you know, back then uh, the retail interest in the market was a lot less than what it is today. And, uh, you know, you could often go in and, and pick up a prospectus from a broker and put in an initial investment. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and the market was coming out of that, uh, that period. Um, and we, it was quite a good period for equities in, uh, you know, in, in, in the 90s. So. so the information arbitrage is what you're sort of flagging there uh, was much, much larger 30 odd years ago. Uh, yeah, look, definitely. I mean, you know, that was pre-internet uh, mm -hmm. in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be the case. Um, you know, if you look back then, I, th I would consider myself quite a naive investor back then, but it was, it was great learning just then as a personal investor before I was running money uh, professionally. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it was a great learning experience. Really, the game changer for me was uh, uh, in, in the late 90s, 99. I'd just come back from a couple of years uh, in the UK and, and picked up a, a self-side research, small cap research job with CCZ Equities. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had just started a couple of months before uh, and effectively had to hit the ground running um, um, covering small caps. It was an interesting time in the market. That was the days of uh, the dot-com boom, if you remember 1999. Yeah. So it had gone from from a market coming out of recession to it was uh, absolute euphoria then. So I'd, I'd sort of seen all facets of the market during that, that decade. Um, so, so yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time. Um, and, you know, I was with, that was a good, good period with CCZ. And, uh, you know, that was up to... 2007, I had a short stint with Investors Mutual, and then you know had had a good break there when when I joined Osbill and um, uh, and, and as, as I mentioned, started that the the Osbill Market Cap Fund in 2010. And what led you to set up uh, to set up QVG? Uh, well, it was really a culmination of we got to the the, the point where where Osbill where we'd sort of reach. Um, you know, maximum in terms of funds, and, and it was you know be very difficult to to continue to deliver the sort of performance that we'd done historically. So, how big was that fund uh, when you left? Well, it? we got at, at at its maximum, it got to half a billion in, in capital. Yep. Uh, in running an X uh, an ASX X two hundred um, small cap fund, mm. um, so that was quite a, a a large amount of money to put to work uh, at that point in time. And, um, you know, I mean, life, life goes on, you get to a stage where your life where you say, is, is, is there another chapter? And, uh, you know, we just felt it was an opportune time to, uh, to start up our own, own business and, you know, be uh, purely focused again on a, on a, on a startup fund, mm -hmm. uh, running small cap mo money. And that's, uh, that's been quite successful to date. So. And the Opportunities Fund, which is on small caps, X100 ASX, I believe. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the objective of that fund, what it does and how it does it, if you could, please. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we are first and foremost stock pickers. So, um, you know, we, we, we consider ourselves benchmark unaware in that, that, that regard. We run a fairly concentrated fund. We typically hold about 30 stock positions. Uh, the focus for us is, you know, finding quality companies in the market that, that um, you know, shows us uh, um, it can deliver uh, performance well above uh, what you normally get in the market. So, um, you know, we focus on things like balance sheet strength, return on capital, and where management have demonstra demonstrably delivered um, uh, returns on capital well above market. So they're the things so that we look like for. So this sounds like a fundamental Buffett-style um, analysis of companies. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think Buffett, I mean, was first and foremost considered very much a value manager, mm -hmm. uh, but I think over the years has developed very much a quality filter in terms of the companies that he looks at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Buffett's one of, one of the key influences amongst others, you know, uh, you know learning, learning markets. Um, but, um, you know, for us, there's, there's also very much the element which is um, at the forefront these days is understanding you know what's driving the market short term and looking at best execution to be able to execute in a market um, and the market conditions at the moment is that that's a very important component. Can you talk to us uh, a little bit about the alignment of interest that you have with this fund? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first and foremost, we we were the first investors in this fund, mm -hmm. and uh, we incubated this fund with our own money, um, and tested all the processes uh, with our, um, you know, our um, uh, our uh, service providers to make sure that once we uh, we took outside money, that was uh, that was we were running a well-oiled machine and. Um, um, so that's first and foremost the alignment. Um, the the other component is, you know, talking about a history where, you know, in small cap space, uh, you know, being able to deliver performance, you know, beyond a certain uh, fund level starts to become a lot more difficult. You know, we we right from the outset decided that we were going to soft close the fund at a certain level, and you know, we did that within our first year. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of elements there that you would get with a boutique that you wouldn't necessarily get with a corporate or, or wholesale fund manager. So most, to be a little bit more explicit on that, most general fund managers in the market will be operating off, um, you know, they, they earn more the more funds they manage and you've made a decision to close off the fund. Um, I think the fund stands today at around 450,000, is that right? Or 450 million? That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, relying on performance fees rather than, um, uh, you know, funds under management gathering by making the fund so large that it becomes very hard to extract performance out of smaller Australian companies. Yeah, well, look, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, fund manager um, uh, incentives really come from the three parts, you know, base fees, performance fees, and their own money in the fund. And we felt, you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if, if our incentives are very much on having our own money in the fund and, and incentivise off performance fees, um, you know, that's, that's a far better outcome for our investors in terms of alignment rather than just be, be um, asset gatherers. Sure. And, and do you feel that sort of 450 million is about the right size for a fund in the market at the moment? Or um, do, you, do you think you should, you'd prefer to be smaller or larger? 
Uh, well, I think it's a sweet spot at the moment. Um, you know, I think once you get to, you know, that sort of six to eight hundred million in funds under management, then it's really a consideration whether we take further managers, uh, measures to, to, to limit the amount of funds that we have under manage, management. We're comfortable with where we're at at the moment. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a, a good place to be. I mean, the rule of thumb really is, you know, once you get to about half a percent of, of total volume, uh, or thumb size in the market, that sort of is, is the level. It's a rule of thumb only, uh, but you know, we see some very good fund managers that are running billion plus in small cap space, but not necessarily delivering, you know, first or second quartile performance simply because of the size of money that they're running. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a position we want to avoid. How should clients think about this asset class in their portfolio when they've got a sleeve of assets exposed to smaller companies, what type of things do you think it make, well, how, how should they think about it? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. I mm. mean, first and foremost, you should think be thinking about companies that are um, a, a relatively earlier stage in their business evolution. You know, if you look at the ASX top 100, um, obviously very well established companies in the most part, uh, but then also more susceptible to disruptive influences uh, through through changes in technolo technology or, or market conditions. So, you know, you do have more disruptors in the, in the small cat space. Uh, you should expect higher growth, uh, typically. Um, uh, and you know the, the the beauty about the small cap space now is the the ability to grow into a, a global business I think is a lot more pronounced now than what it was even 10 15 years ago through uh, technology and trade barriers um, than what it was say running small cap money where you typically are very much aligned to what's happening in the domestic economy mm -hmm. so that digital disruption and the changes in technology whereas a small company with a couple of people, a laptop and an internet connection can almost have a business versus the barriers to entry in the past have really allowed for some you know, great growth stories and, and the ability for that to become international is a great appeal. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in terms of we're talking about business evolution, it's it's well beyond that sort of venture oh, capital people, stage. Sure. I mean, um, you know, the, the average market cap to get into the ASX uh, 200 these days is around a billion dollars in market capitalization. So we're still talking relatively large companies from that context. Yes. But you still have a, typically uh, in the companies we invest in have a better growth path than what we would see in the top 100 space. So, so how small will you go? Uh, well, around 250 million market capitalization is really the limit for us, you know, beyond uh, that on on the downside, it doesn't really that make that much of an impact on a 450 million yes. funds under management portfolio to to go down further in that space. And the other key thing is, um, you know, liquidity uh, in the market is paramount uh, in terms of flexibility to be able to manage your portfolio, managing your positions in the market. So that's another consideration um, that we we. Okay. we have to take into account. And Tony, how would you describe your style? Um, you know, you, we, we referenced before there some influences. Um, is there a particular way you'd describe the way in which you go about analysing and looking at things? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, typically small cap managers get typecast into either growth or value. We don't mm -hmm. consider ourselves either of those. 
Um, if someone was going to try and typecast us, I'd probably put us more in a growth bucket just from the companies that we have invested in the past. But for us, uh, I'd actually like to think of ourselves as, as value investors. We just look at mm -hmm. value through a very different prism mm -hmm. to what a lot of value managers do. So the point I would make there is, um, you know, the classic value style of uh, low PEs and high yield, that typically represents to us flawed business models, which is why it's trading with those metrics in the first instance. So for us, you know, it's all about finding companies that we can find at a price where the future growth and earnings in that business is going to be over and above what the market's uh, paying for it uh, in the current context. And so, you know, we're looking for companies that can deliver over and above expectations through, in, you know, ultimately the financial metrics there is, is growing free cash flow streams and, and high returns on the capital employed in the business. It was interesting, the, uh, the, the conversation recently among some of the Coda partners took place about the changing dynamic in the market and whether we felt the level of digital disruption, the changes to um, businesses had meant that there were far more you know, value investing as a style. Um, and we've seen a recent long underperformance of value managers in that uh, this digital disruption that was going on has mean meaning that many of those companies were actually just in a death spiral and they probably won't recover, that the, the market has moved on and their business models are no longer um, going to be commercial. Is that something you guys think about? Uh, something that we talk about pretty much on a daily basis um, and it's a really great topic to discuss and um, to us it's a lot more than just digital disruption. Um, you know, there's always been technological yep. uh, uh, evolution. Yep. Um, Steam trains. Yeah, absolutely. Steam From the Industrial Revolution on onwards, um, it's certainly happening at a faster pace these days than what it has in the past. But, you know, really the growth versus value argument and what's happening in the market at the moment, um, I think has a lot more to do with um, reducing interest rates and the escalation of which those have dropped, uh, particularly in the last 12 months. You know, it was only 12 months ago. We were looking at an Aussie 10-year bond yield of 2.8%. It's now circa 1.3%, 1.4%. And, you know, effectively that's what's telling you is that growth around the world has dropped, and yet growth companies are working. Why is that the case? Because you're pre prepared to pay a much higher premium for companies that are growing. And if you're a disruptive business, such say an afterpay, for example, mm -hmm. you know, what's happening if, if global growth is is diminishing, it's not necessarily impacting on your business model because you're offering something that's new and fresh in the market. And in some some cases, certainly you, there's more demand for that product when you're getting lack of growth elsewhere to stimulate demand as a retail retailer, for example. Mm -hmm. So those those type of growth stories aren't being impacted despite global growth slowing. Um, whereas for a domestic cyclical, which is typically a lot lower multiple, um, you know, they are more likely to be impacted. And that's where you're seeing a lot more of the downgrades that are happening in the market. So, you know, that's another consideration. And then, you know, momentum be be uh, begets uh, certain outcomes. So, you know, the it just seems to be uh, for, we can talk about the reasons why this is the case as well, but a lot of the value small cap managers typically have wholesale large 
uh, industry super wholesale mandates. Um, you know, there's a process uh, there where a lot of that's being internalised from active to passive management. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's impacting those guys who are transitioning those stocks into the market, which is further impacting those value type names. So from our point of view and our fund, you know, we do have some growth names, but we're also very much on the lookout for stocks that have been impacted negatively, that it's more value names where the business conditions are improving for what whatever reason. And, and some factor may have impacted them, like the structural change with industry super funds, which doesn't have to do with the fundamentals of the company or the market. Yeah. Or presenting an opportunity for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the amount of transitions we've seen in the market in the last two years in small caps, you know, it's, it's probably been more than the last 10 years before that, um, you know, so it's quite pronounced what's happening in very much, and this is what I was alluding to before, is while we have very much a fundamental um, uh, focus in terms of the stocks we look for, we are very attuned short term in terms of getting best ex- execution, both on the buy and sell side through opportunities that present themselves so in the market. So you're prepared to be very pragmatic. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I'm glad you touched on uh, Afterpay. Uh, my, my son, Joshua, who actually edits and produces this podcast, uh, is about to start his HSC and one of his subjects is uh, in, in legal studies and he, he came home well, he, he boards there, but we had a dinner and he was talking about having done an assignment on Afterpay, which is pretty interesting. I'd like to just touch on that if we could, because I think it's a good example in many ways of the small cap space. Um, for our listeners who aren't um, a fay with Afterpay, perhaps you could describe their business model for us. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a, effectively a lay-by, the old lay-by model where it's a buy now, pay later. Um, the beauty about the model for the consumer is that they're not on the hock in terms of cre- credit and uh, the ballooning cycle in terms of revolve, revolving credit. Um, so there's no cost to the consumer if they, they pay on time. Um, they occur one-off late fee. So it's quite, uh, you know, it, it, it's quite a good product from the consumer from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, from the retailer, what it's doing, it's stimulating demand for their product that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So one of the things that uh, attracted us very much to to the Afterpay business model was the fact that retailers uh, ha- have got to a point where they have to have Afterpay um, because there's a large for many retailers, a large chunk of their customer base are asking about the product and are demanding that 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 they have uh, have afterpay as a um, as a service. So um, you know that endorsement of of that product is uh, is is critical to the success of that model. So talking through it in rough terms, if if uh, somebody goes into a store or online, typically they're buying something for a hundred dollars. They get to pay it off in four instalments over how long? Six months? A year yeah, so it's it's a monthly cycle. So, and that's the other beauty of the models. You know, so there's a couple of other key considerations there. Yes. You know, the capital to fund that growth um, is effectively, you know, like working capital is only is, is only one month because it's paid off within within a month. Yes. Um, and the consumer doesn't pay the the merchant pays or the retailer pays. And they're so typically paying around four. percent It's around about four percent of transaction volume. Okay. Yeah. And, and this is a company that's had extraordinary growth, both in its share price and in its business operations. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, look, it's really seemed to have hit a sweet spot with uh, what they 
term the millennials, which is you know that 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 twenty to thirty year old female, uh, you know, is is def definitely a gender bias there towards females. So uh, uh, young fashion, female fashion. Okay. But I think it's morphed a, a, a lot beyond that now. Uh, you know, I know I was was looking at a online hobby site reseller for a. Uh, a uh, remote-controlled aeroplane for my my son, and uh, yes. they offered uh, afterpay, and there's a lot of male-dominated uh, business models that offer afterpay. So it's gone beyond that, but that's really seems to be the um, the where they focus on to start the success. And if you look at their rollout in the US and now the UK, it's very much on that that young fashion, female fashion. And to bring this back to a sort of investment fundamentals perspective, what type of price earnings multiple is a business like that currently trading on? Uh, if you looked on a PE multiple, you would never buy after pay, and mm -hmm. yet it's been a multi-bagger for us. And so the naysayers would say, well, that's just uh, uh, an over-exuberant market. It's, it's extremely overvalued, and that's what the value guys would say. Mm -hmm. uh, my retort to that is that, um, you know, this is a business model that's early in its evolution. To us, it's all about execution and what they grow into and what it could become. So, um, you know, if you look at any of the great uh, 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 stock market examples of the last 20, 30 years, uh, very early uh, in its evol growth evolution, would you would be considered way too expensive to purchase, whether that was a CSL or, or, or realestate.com. Um, and you could name numerous other examples. So, you know, um, it takes a lot of fortitude to be able to ride that business through its evolution, but it's all about execution, what it can become. And for us, um, you know, when we, we first bought that, it was early in our days at QVG, we saw they came out with a FY 2017 result, actually where their growth was phenomenal in Australia, and they were clearly getting some tra tra uh, traction in the market. Mm -hmm. We bought off that, but we, we didn't, at that point in, in, in our wildest streams, Think that that'd be you know four to five hundred million in turnover now in the US with with only eighteen months later, so the execution's been pretty much flawless and and much better than we'd expected and that's what it is all about for us is where they're delivering on results that are beating market expectations. And how do you determine when you exit a, an investment like that? Well, the reverse is true. You know, I mean, if 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 we see um, where there's some issues in terms of um, you know their ability to drive where market expectations think that they should be at, um, and you know there's a certain um, uh, number of di different financial metrics that we we look for in terms of their ability to do that. Um, you know whether growth is escalating or declining. Um, looking what's happening in the cash flow statements, um, the balance sheet ability to be able to continue to drive the growth that the business is expected to deliver. You know there's just a few of the examples that we we look for, but important examples. Um, you know, that's what it's all about for us. So, you know, we would certainly recognise at the moment with the valuation of that company, if there was um, some question marks that came about uh, in their results uh, to meet, you know, their 20 billion plus in turnover expectations that they've given the market within the next two to three years, then there would be a significant impact in, in, in that valuation. Um, but that's, that's, that's the risk of the market. And, and how do you, with respect to Afterpay, how do you think about the regulatory risk? 
uh, we're pretty comfortable with that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what's good for the consumer and that's what regulators should look for. And, you know, you look at this product compared to a credit card, for mm -hmm. example, which is the predominant uh, credit mechanism for the consumer uh, or, or other uh, more traditional products uh, out there, such as the... Um, you know, the sort of deals you hear from the Harvey Norman alike on flexi rent and so on, mm -hmm. um, on two years in interest free. But we know that they're, how do they make money out of that account keeping fees month on month and effectively a chunk of that at the back end when it's not repaid within that two years, then, um, you know, that's a far inferior out, uh, consumer outcome yeah, for and us. The, and the traditional credit card model of extending credit and then you know, allowing them to pay a minimum, but to keep a sort of a revolving line of credit and, there at very, very high rates. Ab absolutely, in that revolving debt cycle, you know, as, as I mentioned up front, you know, for the consumer, it's a one-off late payment. Obviously, if you're seen to be a bad credit risk, uh, then you get kicked off the system, but I think everyone understands that, and that's a fair outcome. Um, so, you know, for all those reasons, I mean, we, we, we're relatively comfortable, well, I say relatively comfortable, we're very comfortable with with um, you know um, that that level of regulation, obviously there's been some uh, recent inquiry from from Austrac. Um, we thought the market sort of over overreacted to that. Um, you know, Austrac's doing what Austrac should do uh, to making sure there's an audit process and there's a transparent process in terms of um, uh, in terms of how accounts are monitored, uh, but you know, for the sort of things Austrac are looking for when you're looking at effectively an average of transaction size in the low hundreds of dollars. It's not, uh, we don't see um, afterpay type service as a, as a major risk from a money laundering perspective. And what are some of the other positions uh, that you've got uh, at the moment that you quite like? Yeah, uh, there's, we, we own a route, we've got a very large Mix uh, in our portfolio for you know retail such as City Chic is another large position where we're a substantial shareholder in um, quite um, a, a niche business model uh, in catering for the plus size uh, uh, lady, which uh, you know what what works well for them is a a, a different type of cut or, or garment totally suited to to, to that body shape um, and but it's a global niche uh, and that's the beauty of that business and management executing very well on that global business strategy with large proportionist sales uh, online at high margins and still relatively early in that stage of growth. Um, another stock that's done very well for us, we've got a good position, re retain a good position is, is Jumbo Interactive, which is an online uh, lottery service. So effectively offers the same type of service that you could get from a um, a news agent, news agent but yeah. now online uh, at very aggregating into the US type lotto lottery service as well or is this totally different? well there's definitely it's a very early stage there I mean the 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 success at the moment is is the fact that they're getting much uh, greater penetration in Australia you know Australia int online internet penetrations now in the in the low 20s um, you know, in some places in Europe, it, it's it's forty to fifty percent, and we see no reason why over time that won't get to the same level in Australia. Particularly if you offer a good app and or, or mobile service to be able to put your numbers in. Um, and in the US, there's a lot tighter uh, regulatory restrictions, but you know, uh, 
certainly uh, there are a number of states there that consider the current regulation to be out of date uh, with current technology and um, you know, with some deregulation happening there, that's a great opportunity for, um, for Jumbo with the services that they offer to be able to get access to some of those, those state markets in the US. So if I'm right, when you were an analyst, one of the sectors you used to cover was gaming, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, yes. As well. yeah, so yeah. drawing back on some of those fundamentals and what you're referring to in the US, I believe, is the allowance for um, effectively gambling and wagering on sport outside of Las Vegas and each state having their own legislation and ability to do that, which is a, yeah. a fairly big change. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in, in this specific instance, it's being able to offer our, our lotteries online. Okay. Yeah. So that's 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 the difference. So um, uh, there's been some some moves in that direction, um, but it's not the reason why we're in jumbo. We see that as effectively icing on the cake. That's an optionality. You know, mm -hmm. it's a bit like afterpay, where we looked at a result and felt the market was going to um, strongly re-rate the stock off that result. Uh, likewise, we're in jumbo because we saw the internet online penetration, the execution that was delivering in terms of organic free cash flow growth through that business, and then some changes in the mix of uh, of lotteries, particularly the the maths behind Powerball, which meant more jackpots, which attracts a lot more volume when a jackpot occurs, uh, and that's really provided a step change in the growth in, in that business as well. So we are aware of these other developments, but it's not the principal reason why we're there. But we obviously closely focus on that because that, that's another leg hopefully down the track. Sure. Tony, now we're recording this in uh, mid-July 2020. Um, we've had an interesting sort of start to the year in that we, you know, most people were thinking the Australian economy was really going to suffer and then we had another example of the pollsters and even bookmakers getting it all wrong and uh, the coalition being elected um, and we've seen uh, you know interest rate outlook now most people are, th are thinking you're going to have a cash rate uh, below one percent um, and, and a big change in markets what's your outlook for the small cap space um, you know looking forward from here yeah we're, we're pretty positive um, and you probably expect me to say that because I'm an equities guy, so mm. I, I, I better explain why we're positive. Um, there's a few few reasons. Uh, first and foremost, we've had quite a bit of firepower um, um, that's recently occurred that can, should continue to drive markets. You know, I mentioned earlier the, 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 the substantial change we've had in the interest rate setting, and that's occurred in a relatively short period of time. Um, and that's been, you know, uh, on expectations of um, the RBA coming to the party, which they have over the last two months, and expectations further to go. So that's one one thing fueling the market. Um, so if you think about that fuel going into a period where, um, look back a year ago, uh, the domestic economy really hit a hole um, around September, October last year. And it's been fairly moribund since, you know, we're still seeing some pretty tepid data going through to this June quarter, but particularly that December quarter last year and March quarter last year was very soft, particularly in consumer cyclical type businesses. So we're going to be washing through very weak comps now. And I think some of the data with some of the fuel and economy with interest rate cuts and now um, uh, tax cuts now starting to come into the mix, you know, given that's passed the Senate a few days ago, 
coming into late this year, early next year, um, you know, we're quite positive. And the other point I would make, uh, if you look at interest rate settings, and, and, you know, I've tracked this over a long period of time now where small cap equities have typically run around uh, about 6 to 7% sort of equity risk premium over the Aussie 10-year bond rate, you know, just for a very rough guide in terms of mark, equi Australian equity market valuation. Today, if you look at that, they're sitting around about, you know, mid to high sevens as an equity risk premium. So basically what I'm suggesting is that based on where interest rates are, where the reduction in rates have sort of inflated all asset class classes, um, equities being no different, we still think there's some way to go in terms of that inflation because of the sharp drop in, in interest rates over the last six months. Thank you, really appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Uh, thanks for joining us inside the rope, Tony. No problems, David, it's been a pleasure. Great chat. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.